the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 75 for the 3rd 3rd of May 2013. Today I'm bringing you something a little bit different. It's about alleged workplace discrimination by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory against a young Earth creationist, David Coppage, or possibly Copage. For this, I'll be interviewing a gentleman who goes by the name of Harold Ormansky. Harold is a professional in the legal world, having practiced as an employment lawyer, among many other things. He's been active in skepticism and atheism for many years and takes a personal interest in cases such as this one that we'll be discussing during this episode. So with that incredibly brief intro, welcome to the podcast, Harold. Actually, I I, I prefer Harry. Harry. Welcome to the podcast, Harry. Harry. Well, thank you. And and your listeners should know that's not my name, but I'm sort of in the witness protection program. And uh, some of your listeners may actually recognize my voice and know who I am. So I, I, I do want to say it's it's an alias, that whole Harold thing. Yeah. Uh, and because you're in the sort of witness protection thing, if people do have an idea of who you are, let's keep the speculation to a minimum on public uh, forums. L- let's keep it on the QT, so to speak. Yes. Yes, yes indeed. or DL. Uh, yes, okay. the down low and dirty, yes. Sure. Uh, so let's get right to this case. So this is uh, the, what I want to interview about is the case of David Coppage or possibly Copage. Um, this guy basically filed a wrongful uh, termination suit with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory as well as the uh, one of the California universities that operate JPL. Um, this was filed way back in 2010. And then it was only recently, earlier in 2013, finally resolved with a judge throwing it all out. So let's start at the very beginning. What did Coppage claim, and what would he have to show in order to be successful? Actually, before we get to that, Stuart, I I do want to comment on one thing you just said, that it's all over. I'm not positive of that. I don't know how much longer they might have to file an appeal. I, I was checking everywhere I could. I could see no indication of an appeal, but after they lost the lawsuit, the attorney for Mr. Kopich or Kopich, I am not sure of the pronunciation either, did indicate that he intended on appealing. So it could get appealed. It was just a trial court judgment. Oh, okay. So there might still be more to this, a follow-up in 2016. <laughs> Correct. This is Now, this is also California State Court, which I found interesting when I started looking into this. When I first heard about this case, I assumed it was in federal court. Lots of employment discrimination lawsuits are in federal court. This was in state court under California state law. So it's all based on California state law, not any type of federal U.S. anti-discrimination law. Why do you think they filed in state as opposed to federal? You know, I, I imagine that the state law is probably in California is probably more favorable to employees than federal law. Okay. And also to to sue under federal court, there's a whole process you have to go through with going through the EEOC and and getting sort of a decision from them one way or the other before you can file a lawsuit. He maybe didn't want to do that and just wanted to go straight to court. I'm not sure. I I haven't talked to his attorney. Okay. Uh, So then with that preamble out of the way, uh, what did he claim? Well, he claimed... A number of things. And there were really two claims, and they changed over time. 
His first claim, well, and, but they were all based on an allegation that he was discriminated against in violation of California law on the basis of religious viewpoint, and specifically him being a evangelical Christian who believed in the intelligent design. I, I don't want to call it a theory. I think that would elevate it too much, but the intelligent design idea of, of how life originated. So he claimed that he was discriminated against for having that viewpoint. Okay. And he claimed he was discriminated against in a couple of ways. He, fir- he first claimed that he was discriminated against by losing his job. Well, not losing his job, losing a appointment as the lead systems administrator on the Cassini project. He was one of, I believe, four systems administrators at that point. They, ha- they had appointed him to be the lead systems administrator, which did not involve any extra pay and not many extra duties, especially by the time they removed that position because all the other system administrators had been around such a long time. They really didn't need much supervision or management. So at, at, at one point they did take his lead Away, He didn't suffer any reduction in salary or anything like that. And then later on, they had to have a 30% reduction in force on the Cassini project, and he was laid off, essentially. And uh, he amended his lawsuit because he'd already sued by that point of time. He amended his lawsuit to say now he'd been laid off because of discrimination against him for his intelligent design views. Okay. And what would he have to actually show in court for that lawsuit to have been successful? Well, he would have to show that it is illegal to discriminate against someone in California and anywhere in the United States for a religious viewpoint, unless you're a religious institution, which is a different issue. So in other words, if you're a church or something like that, you can actually discriminate based on religious viewpoint. Unless you're one of those accepted organizations, you cannot. So he basically would have to show that negative employment actions of some type were taken against him on the basis of his religion or religious beliefs. In broad brushstrokes, how would you actually do that? Well, there's a number of ways to do that. And in this case, there were a lot of depositions that were taken, depositions being where you go to the opposing lawyer's office and they have the opportunity to ask you questions under oath so they can do it that way. They can get what's called discovery in a lawsuit where you go and you get documents. So you would go to, this was Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So you would go to Caltech, you would go to the JPL and you would say, give us all of your documents relating to this particular employee, any internal emails relating to this person, any employment evaluations, any memoranda or anything like that. And so you would be able to look through all of those and maybe find, you could find evidence of it. You can also even if you don't find someone saying, yes, we're going to discriminate against someone because no one really says that anymore if, right. if they have half a brain because they know they'll get sued, you can look at the facts and a, a, a judge or a court can make reasonable inferences based on those facts. In other words, if you say something and then there's a negative employment discrimination action taken directly after that or you know you can look at it in time, well, then you can maybe make the uh, assumption or you can reach the conclusion that it was in fact a negative employment action taken on the basis of a impermissible discriminatory purpose. Okay, so he basically claimed then discrimination. In contrast to that, I mean, so you have a plaintiff, you know, he sued, and then you have the yes. defendants would be Caltech and JPL. What did they claim were the facts of the case? Well, with the, now it's it's really interesting. If you go to the National Center for Science Education, anybody can go look at this stuff. They have all the court documents, all the documents relating to this case 
on their website and there's a link to it and you can just go read all of this. You can I have one of them op- open in front of me right now so you can take a look at all of these things and read for yourself if you want to what each side said and then you can read the judge's final opinion. The judge's final opinion essentially adopted everything that JPL and Caltech had to say about it. So he sort of adopted all of their proposed findings in addition to adopting things that they had said in court. I don't have access to the transcripts of what was said in court, so my knowledge is limited to what the documents are on the National Center for Science Education's website. So what Caltech said was that he was he was employed there and he did discuss these beliefs in intelligent design. He had also discussed political issues and all of this happened during work hours, which I would say is probably going to be considered to be inappropriate under by any employer to be discussing things like politics. Specifically, he discussed Proposition 8, which was, a, I believe, a, a gay rights proposition in California. I can't remember which way Proposition 8 went. I don't, I don't remember what a yes vote meant or a no vote meant on Proposition 8. But he was certainly on the religious conservative side of Proposition 8, and he would essentially harangue other people, according to JPL and Caltech, he would harangue people at the office who had a different viewpoint than them, than he did. In fact, one of his co-workers said, well, I disagree with you on this point. And he basically said, what do you hate children? You want children to be injured and, and things such as this. Uh, that that person felt very insulted by this. Mm-hmm. So what Caltech basically said was that he actually had created at one point a hostile work environment for a co-worker because he was talking to this coworker so much about religious issues and that this coworker actually was a, a Christian herself and felt that he was insulting her Christian beliefs. Mm-hmm. So he was actually, according to her, creating a hostile work environment for her as a Christian within the office. And she filed a complaint against him for creating a hostile work environment based on religion. They then talked to him and his boss said, look, you know, you're not doing yourself any favors. You know, you were really going to limit your employment prospects by doing this kind of thing. He then said, oh, well, then you're saying I'm limiting my employment prospects for believing in intelligent design and talking to people. And the boss said, no, it's because you're being an ass. In other okay, words, you yeah. know, you, you know, you're, you're, you're berating people. You're acting inappropriately in the office setting. You're violating the policies of the JPL. And he had had, a, according to the, the JPL and Caltech documents, he had had numerous complaints from quote unquote customers, which I imagine is NASA, over the years about his, well, well about him just being an ass. Is the only way I would describe it, being aggressive, being argumentative, uh, be, you know, p- belittling people during th- their, their interactions during work hours. So Caltech looked into this. They eventually wrote him a letter where they said, you know, I guess a write-up is a one way you would describe it. That was something that would go into his file. Eventually, they actually rescinded that. But a- a- along with the letter, they said, we are removing you from your job as lead system analyst. And again, that, according to Caltech, had no pay cut, no anything like that. So he initially claimed that removing that job was religious discrimination. And Caltech said, it's not even anything. It's not a negative employment action. Even if it were based on some religious purpose, it wouldn't be legally actionable because it's not a negative employment action. It's just a change in job title, effectively. Well, he was it's almost like he was given this honorary status as lead. 
and they took that honorary status away from him, but that's not enough to sue about, Caltech said. And they said also it was done because he was being belligerent and insubordinate. Another thing that happened is when he went and was talking to the supervisors, he acted in a very aggressive and insubordinate manner. And every time they would say, you know, it's your way of interacting with your coworkers, he said, no, it's because I'm talking about intelligent design. Another interesting thing I found from reading these documents is, according to Caltech, every time one of these people had taken a negative employment action, they actually apparently had been very friendly to him on the terms of intelligent design in that they had bought his, he was going around selling these intelligent design DVDs around the office and almost everybody who was involved in taking action against him had, had bought one of these things or multiple of these things from him during office hours. It, you know, it, it does not seem to me from reading these documents that there was any real claim that any type of hostile work environment on the basis of religious to, uh, viewpoint had been created vis-a-vis him. He, it seems like he was treated, according to these documents, in a very fair manner by Caltech and that nobody really cared. In fact, a lot of the people there maybe even shared his beliefs that, that you know, essentially they're, they're saying he was not discriminated against on the basis of his belief in intelligent design or any other belief he had. Well, after he filed the lawsuit, Caltech had to go through this reduction in force. The JPL had to go through this reduction in force. I think uh, the Cassini mission had to be reduced from 170 people to 120 people. Yeah, so uh, when just the, for listeners, um, the Cassini mission is this big, 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 like school bus size probe that's in orbit around Saturn right now. Um, it got there, I think, in 2004. Um, and so it's been there for almost a decade, really. And uh, they're planning on ending the mission with a crash into Saturn sometime around 2017. So, I mean, it's not crazy that they would be reducing the workforce a decade after the primary mission, really. Well, and NASA basically said, we're cutting costs. You you have to cut this number of people. You have no choice. You can only have 120 full-time employees on the project. So mm-hmm. they, they had to cut. There were four systems analysts. They had to cut it down to three. And they have Caltech and the JPL have a policy on how to do that. They look at things like experience. They look at things like knowledge. They look at things like how good, how good of an employee you are. And they also look at how long you've been there. He had been there the longest. But if you look through what Caltech says about why they decided that he was the one that had to go, uh, he didn't have he wasn't a very good administrator or manager. So they looked at that point. Someone he didn't know Linux really at all. And, and they really wanted to start working more with Linux. And they had one of the systems analysts was really good with Linux. He didn't know many of the other programs that other people that were kept new and some of the programs and, and things that he knew how to work with were being discontinued. So according to Caltech and JPL, they said that, you know, um, you're not the best. You're, in fact, number four and we're letting you go. So he amended his complaint to say that he was let go because of his religious viewpoint. So it sounds like he really didn't have a legal leg to stand on. I mean, so we go back to the original complaint. I mean, what did he... What did he actually claim then to say that he was religiously discriminated against other than the broad brush strokes? Yeah, they fired me because I'm an ID proponent and a young earth creationist. Well, I think that his best piece of evidence, let's look at it. He said they discriminated against him based on his religious beliefs. So he had been haranguing according to Caltech. He had been uh, being somewhat very assertive with fellow employees about this intelligent design stuff on a number of occasions and about Proposition 8. 
So when his boss came to him and said, there are complaints about you and you're not helping your employment prospects by this, by this activities, he took that as an assertion by this manager that what that meant was you're not doing yourself any favors employment wise by having these beliefs or by talking about these beliefs. Okay. So he claimed that essentially Caltech was saying to him, it's because of intelligent design. The judge found that that was actually not the case. The judge found, because the judge adopted Caltech and JPL's proposed statement of decision, which is really what the, the judgment is at this point, the judge essentially found that that was because that he had been unduly aggressive and assertive with his coworkers. Okay, so I know that his legal team raised a bunch of, re, of uh, objections throughout this three-year process. Um, you already discussed why the judge pretty much rejected his case, but why did he also reject basically every objection by the legal team? Well, you can't really think of them as objections, although they did file many objections to the proposed statement that the judge adopted as the final judgment in the case. They're really just assertions, and all of these assertions have to be decided on a factual basis. It was a trial. When you have a trial, you look at it and you have to decide what facts are true. So the judge heard it, and the judge listened to everything, and the judge made a decision. Well, I believe what Caltech has to say. I believe what JPL has to say, and I believe what the other defendants. Because it's not only he did not only sue JPL and Caltech, he sued managers, the th- three employees at, at Caltech, and he also uh, sued, although this really isn't, isn't a real lawsuit, John Doe's 1 through 25. So he, he, the judge, you can't really think of it in terms of, of objections. He, it's all part of the assertion of facts that they're making that they claim that he was discriminated against based on a religious viewpoint. The interesting thing is, you know, he didn't work in any type of environment where these issues were really at play at all. It's not like he was a biology professor that they were looking at who, who denied the central tenets of biological science. He was a computer guy at JPL working on a mission to go to Saturn. You know, intelligent design had nothing to do with the job. Religion had nothing to do with the job. Mm-hmm. He, he was just a computer guy. So did intelligent design and young earth creationism actually have any role in this case other than what he claimed for the, was the reason that he was uh, you know, re- disciplined and then later fired for? Or did it actually, was it just because, as you said, he was an ass? Well, yes and no. If you look at the, you know, and, and that is my sort of general characterization. No one actually says that in any of the documents. Well, yeah. So no one legally accused him of that. But if you look at the thing where he is being accused of being unduly assertive, being unduly harassing during work hours, that the re, the, what he was talking about was intelligent design and Proposition 8. So he was talking about those two different things. And you know, ha- discriminated against him for his beliefs on either subject would be in violation of employment law, and he would have a lawsuit if, if he could prove that that was the basis. So, yeah, it has something to do with it to the extent of that's what he was talking about. But it's not what he was talking about that they took, that, that, that at least Caltech and JPL claim were the basis of their actions. It's how he was saying it. Okay. So, in other words, at the, at the office, I could go in and talk to someone about religion. And that may be okay, that may be not okay, but if I start yelling them about, yelling at them about it, if I start berating them about it, if I start trying to say, you're not a good Christian, 
because of this or making them feel that way even if I don't say that, that can be harassing, that can be inappropriate. You can take action against an employee for doing something like that, even if you couldn't take action about them for just making some kind of offhand comment that, that uh, of a view that you don't agree with or like. Okay. So in general, what do you think about the claims that intelligent design has nothing to do with religion? And then intelligent design proponents turning around and suing for religious discrimination when their views aren't allowed. And I realize this doesn't have anything directly to do with this case, but since I have a a law guy on, I'm, I'm interested in this. Well, you know, for purposes of employment discrimination, I don't really think it matters, especially under California law. You cannot discriminate against someone for their viewpoint unless it relates to the job. So um, even if you were to say, oh, intelligent design is not a religious concept, it's just a view that I have, unless it relates to your job, especially under California law, you can't discriminate it against someone for that. So it doesn't really matter for purposes of this lawsuit, whether it's a religious claim or not, it would be viewpoint discrimination. Although they did claim it was religious. Now, he, I don't think he really was claiming that intelligent design had no religious component because he talked about it in terms of religion. Mm-hmm. He also talked about it in terms of science. And he said, I, I believe, I think I read one thing in, in the JPL uh, filing that he had said it was the only reasonable scientific belief re- regarding the origin of life. But, you know, it, it obvi- I think for, for him, from his standpoint, he didn't consider that it had anything to do other than with religion. At least that's the impression and the opinion that I get from reading the papers. I, I, I do think that it's a, re- a ridiculous assertion that intelligent design has nothing to do with religion, just like a, a young earth creationism has nothing to do with religion. It's based on religious bo- beliefs. It's based on religious books. It's based on religion. So you really can't separate one or the other, but you, you know, you, and it's real important. You cannot discriminate against people for this kind of stuff, nor should you be able to. If Caltech and JPL had discriminated against him on the basis of his belief in intelligent design or on the basis of religion, they should have lost the lawsuit and they should have had to pay him a lot of money. You you just can't do that. It is illegal everywhere in the United States to do that. And I would imagine most other countries where people listen to this program, it would be illegal to discriminate on that basis for good reason. So, you know, we can't make light of the fact that you cannot discriminate on that basis. Um, I'm curious, though, like in general. So the intelligent design people try to say this is not a religion. This is a scientific, they say theory. I try not to use that word. I like, as you said, model. Uh, This is they, they claim that ID is a scientific model, has nothing to do with religion. But then whenever there's a lawsuit about it, it seems to be that they claim religious discrimination. I'm curious as to whether, you know, what their propaganda says versus what they claim in lawsuits, if those can be used you know, against each other effectively in a legal setting. You know, they say it's not religion uh, well, in one place, they do in another place. Does that question actually make any really sense? really to rack my head around the concept of someone discussing intelligent design with coworkers outside the context of a religious discussion. And it seems to me to be extremely unlikely that a layperson who is not uh, an employee of the Discovery Institute is really going to have the wherewithal and the knowledge to engage in a discussion or even the desire to engage in a discussion about intelligent design without 
bringing up religion because for most of them it is a religious belief i think you know my opinion is it may you know it may be the case for the people at the discovery institute i can't read their minds but even they uh, i mean they have a vested interest in discussing it outside the terms of religion they are trying to establish this as a non-religious idea so that it can be taught in schools, right? So that it can be taught in schools without violating the Constitution of the United States or, or you know, impermissibly mixing religion in schools. That's what it's all about. So they would know how to talk the talk. They would know how to speak about it in terms that are not religious. But, you know, just some guy that goes to church, some guy that just reads books or watch videos about intelligent design... I would think almost in every case that is going to be in the context of a religious belief. And they're not they're they're not with the Discovery Institute. They're not a professional who's going to talk about this in a quasi secular term because that's the, what the, the agenda that they want to push. They're just just regular people. And this is what they believe. And for most of them, for mo- almost all of them, I think it's going to be in the context of this is a religious belief. And, and that's what they're going to talk about. All right. Um I think we've pretty much actually covered everything uh, that I wanted to ask you. Is there anything else about the case that you think uh, should be should be mentioned or background material or anything else? Not, not really. I mean, it, it's it, in many ways, it's a fairly ordinary circumstance. I mean, employment discrimination lawsuits are, are very common. There are people that specialize in this area of law on both sides. If you went to an employment law conference in California, it would probably have as many lawyers practicing employment law in California, if not more, than the number of people that go to the amazing meeting. It is going to be a large number of people in this field, not to mention the judges and everybody else that's associated with it. So it's, it's, it's you know, and there's also government agencies. There's the EEOC. There, I believe there's a California version of that as well that look into complaints of discrimination. So it is a big industry. And the reason that this case is publicized, the reason that we know about this is because people want it to be publicized. People want it to be a cause celeb. But in, in reality, looking at this, it is just a sort of, to me, a normal run-of-the-mill employment law case with the normal run-of-the-mill type of claims. And it went really far, I think, probably because this guy... I imagine is not paying the lawyer's fees. Oh, yeah. No, he was represented. Yeah. yeah. Discovery Institute had a uh, nickel in it, to say, per se. And yeah. I, I think the Liberty Institute also. I would also, imagine that. So, yeah. So if you look at it, you know, he, his lawyers were able to gener- do a lot of work and generate a lot of documents. That is going to be very expensive. And I don't know what's going to happen with an appeal. They may have already missed their deadline to file an appeal. I don't know. But... Uh, that is also a very expensive proposition. Appeals are very expensive. But, you know, if you're an advocacy group and this is getting you publicity, you may still want to do that. If, if he were paying it, he might look at it and say, it's just not worth the money. How much does something like this actually cost? I mean, how much, like if his lawyers were billing him, do you have any idea you know, for three years of work how much this would have cost him? I looking at the amount of work here, now... Th- you got to look at it a different couple, a couple of different ways. Employment discrimination lawyers sometimes work on a contingency fee where they say they'll collect 30% of what you get or something along those lines. So it, it may not cost a person anything, or it may be on the basis of an hourly fee, especially if someone else is paying it. Mm-hmm. I would, I would estimate that if this were being done on an hourly basis, this would be at least $200,000 worth of legal work on the part of the plaintiff's attorney. That's just my guesstimate. And an appeal, I would estimate, 
to the intermediate appellate court in California, I would think an appeal in this case would cost at least $50,000. And to go up to the Supreme Court of California, if necessary, after that, I would think would be another $50,000, maybe forty. And then if they got to the Supreme Court, pretty much everything's already been written. You could probably do that for another $30,000. So it's a pretty expensive proposition. You can't see it, but my eyes have grown double in size. <laughs> That's quite expensive. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, well, lawyer, being, going, being part of lawsuits is a very expensive proposition. Okay, I guess uh, one final quick question about this case is, why did it take three years? Is that normal? Well, you know, I'm not a. Well, it's California. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, you know, California does have a reputation of having somewhat of a slow judiciary system. But I, I really, I don't know. Civil lawsuits can take a long time, especially when you end up going through disputed proceedings, trials, and things like that. This, this, this case did take a long time. But frankly, I don't know that it's all that long. It doesn't really shock me that something that happened in 2010 was resolved in early 2013. Frankly. I think that's actually pretty quick. I, I could I could easily see something like this taking five or six years to resolve. Why and does it take so long? Quicker. I mean, isn't well, there like some Fourth Amendment thing that says you know, quick and speedy trial? Uh, well, speedy trial only applies to criminal prosecutions. Oh, okay. So those take first booking, and then these civil suits just sort of fit in when they can, and it takes a while? It depends. You sometimes they will actually, in a courthouse, have certain judges only hear civil suits, certain judges only hear criminal suits, so that uh, the, the civil suits don't get pushed away because criminal cases have that speedy trial issue. It just depends. It's all different. Even within California, it's going to be different with, within ju- different, different judicial districts. Uh, I think I've pretty much exhausted this topic. Um, unless there's anything else, um, I'll say thank you and good night. Well, you know, Stuart, actually, I, I do. I have a couple of things. Uh-oh. If we can end this on, can we end this on some astronomy stuff? Uh, possibly, if I can edit it out. If I don't know the answer. <laughs> okay, so what's what's up with this comet? When when can I see this comet? Are uh, you're talking about comet Ison? I don't know. I've been reading about there's going to be a really big comet this year. Um, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I think that... I'm really excited. I want to see a big, big freaking comet. I mean, last time I saw a really big freaking comet, I was maybe like eight years old. Yeah, I think that you're thinking about Comet Ison, which should be, if it's going to be bright, is supposed to be bright uh, in late 2013. So That's this year. This year, yeah, you know, maybe six months or so. And will you take me out to go see it? Uh, possibly. We might even arrange a Mile High Skeptics meetup for it if you want. Oh, that would be interesting. That would be... Now, what time of day? Is it going to be like in the afternoon? Because I heard we can see this during the daylight. It's going to be so bright. Well, it's it's notoriously incredibly difficult to actually predict if a comet is going to be big and bright or if it's going to be a dud. I mean, Halley's Comet was predicted to be great in, I think, 1986, and it was a dud. Um, I remember. I, I, I remember going out uh, into the eastern plains of Colorado to get a nice dark view, and it was just like a little smudge. Yeah, I it was... It was very annoying. I was three, so I don't really remember it. Um, I'm, I'm looking around the internet real quick. Um, I don't see a good date. Um, it looks like, you know, maybe the very end of November, and this website is saying 
it'll be good right after sunset. I mean, so comets are usually their brightest when they're closest to the sun, because that's when a lot of material is melting off and you know, the particulates are being lit up by the sun. So it's, it's when they're really close to the sun, and because they swing around the sun, they'll be visible alternatively, you know, right before or right after sunset or right before sunrise. So it just depends on if it's you know, coming from the south or coming from the north, when it's going to be brightest uh, so I don't have those numbers right in front of me. So you know, it might and be a very who early. Built the pyramids. Who built the pyramids on the moon? I mean, I've, you showed me these pictures of pyramids on the moon. Who built them? Uh, somebody in Photoshop. Oh, okay, fair enough. Okay, story. Thank you. All right, and thank you. It's been a pleasure. You too. Bye. All right, bye. Thanks again to my pseudonymous interviewee. There are three things to elaborate on, two for non-USAEAN listeners. First is the structure of NASA. NASA is the United States Space Agency, but as with many political organizations, when it was founded, different persons in more political power than others got certain concessions. One of these are the different NASA centers spread throughout the United States, generally in then-powerful Senate or Congressional districts. There's the headquarters in Washington, D.C., and then there are centers in Virginia, Ohio, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Texas, and three in California. All of these have slightly different objectives, such as, perhaps the most obvious, Florida being the main launch point. Houston generally runs personed mission operations, while JPL generally runs unpersoned mission operations, such as Cassini at Saturn, JPL standing for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. These centers are often paired with a university or other organization due to the politics and bureaucratical reasons that I don't pretend to understand. That's why, in this case, David Coppage sued both NASA's JPL and Caltech, because JPL is technically operated by Caltech, the California Institute of Technology. The second bit of information is the Fourth Amendment, which I mentioned briefly. I actually meant the Sixth Amendment, which is contained within the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution that collectively form the Bill of Rights. The first part of the first sentence states, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial. As Harry pointed out, this only applies to a criminal case. Third is Comet Ison, or more properly called Comet 2012-S1, or C-2012-S1. The Ison is a parenthetical name that indicates the organization that found it, which was the Russian International Scientific Optical Network, or ISON, Ison. Unfortunately, most media places saw ISON in parentheses after C-2012-S1 and thought that it was a nickname. It isn't. I was generally correct in my response during the interview. The comet likely has either not been around the sun before or has been around less than about four times, based on various chemical and light properties. We don't know how big it is, but it's already fairly bright for where it is in the solar system. And, if the brightness continues to increase as expected, it may get as bright or brighter than the full moon, making it comparable with great comets that happen every few centuries. 
I personally am not getting my hopes up. Comet brightness is notoriously incredibly difficult to predict, and it may not even survive its closest approach to the Sun. Its closest approach to the Sun will take it only one solar diameter from the Sun's surface, meaning that it very well may disintegrate due to the tidal forces pulling on different parts of it by different amounts. It is coming from the south and headed north, but it should be visible to both the north and southern hemispheres, roughly between November and January. Closest approach to the sun is November 28th of this year, 2013, and if it does survive closest approach, it should be visible to the unaided eye until mid-January 2014, or at least those are the estimates right now. It will be a morning object in the northern hemisphere until closest approach, and then an evening object. For those in the southern hemisphere, it's going to be a morning object pretty much all the time, but it's going to be below the horizon for pretty much the whole time after closest approach. This kind of really sucks for me, and anyone who's in Australia or other parts of the southern hemisphere, because that's when I'm going to be in Australia, starting in mid-December through about mid-January. I'm sure that Richard Hoagland and others will have their own little bits of pseudoscience related to this comet in the upcoming months, and if they do, stay tuned to the podcast and the blog. That wraps up this topic for the 75th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little bit or a lot of it at the same time. For more information about this podcast, you can visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on many different places, including the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your other podcasting software or portal or interface or whatever of choice. If you liked it, then also tell friends, family, and several other people. 